This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Lawrence Krauss. He's a theoretical physicist at Arizona State University. I spoke with him on July 13, 2012, at the Hall of Philosophy at the Chautauqua Institution in New York. Download the MP3 of the produced show with Lawrence Krauss at onbeing.org. So for the last four days, we have explored depths of religious engagement and passion in four very different lives, um, especially in the sphere of social action and social service. Public theology has a long history at Chautauqua, and in earlier generations, that meant uh, a voice like Reinhold Niebuhr, an authoritative Christian voice in an overwhelmingly Christian culture. In my mind, the individuals we heard from these last few days are the shape of public theology in our time, and that is diverse and dispersed, it's men and it's women, uh, people who are passionately at work in particular spheres of life that are often hidden from the news headlines, and they are Christian and they're not. Uh, The physician Abdallah Dar and the Buddhist anthropologist Joan Halifax Father Greg Boyle's work with gangs in Los Angeles, and Rami Nashashibi's work in the inner city of Chicago. Today's guest takes us in a completely different direction, but what, one which I find equally distinctive and influential in our time. Lawrence Krauss is a cosmologist, a theoretical physicist, and a public scientist, bringing the learnings of science to the rest of us, to the wider world. So the science-religion debate uh, is well-known, and Lawrence Krauss has strong views on that. But in my mind, I'm just going to lay my cards on the table, um, what science might have to say about God or what religion might have to say about science is not really what either of those disciplines are for. I am, however, fascinated by how scientists in our time We've talked a little bit about neuroscientists this week. Neuroscientists, biologists, and certainly physicists and cosmologists are adding their own insights and questions to realms of human inquiry that religion and philosophy long dominated. Where did we come from? What does it mean to be human? What does the future hold? What is our place in the universe? Science is is as much at the center of everyday life as it's ever been. I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that some kind of science and technology is woven throughout every moment of every day for many of us. And yet, we understand, speaking for myself, so little about it. Someone like Lawrence Krauss, who's helping us understand, is bringing his own 21st century spin on the phrase, which is the theme of this week, inspire, commit, act. Lawrence Krauss is Foundation Professor in the School of Earth and Space Exploration and the Physics Departments at Arizona State University. He's the Associate Director of the Beyond Center there and Director of the Origins Initiative. His books include The Physics of Star Trek, and we will talk about that, don't worry, Fear of Physics, A Guide to the Perplexed, and in 2012, A Universe from Nothing, Why There is Something, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing. This Perfect. comes right uh, like clockwork, and I was informed yesterday it's a barge. I thought it was a train. Oh. Wait, so I've seen it's it. sorry, it's a steamboat. It's a steamboat, not a barge. Okay. It's a very fancy barge. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, tell us. It's, from a cosmological perspective, they're the same thing. It's okay. It's, okay. All right. I'm glad to know that. Um, 
As we start, tell us about the origins of your life as a scientist. <laughs> um, my mother wanted me to be a doctor and my brother to be a lawyer. And unfortunately, my brother became a doctor. I mean, a lawyer, actually. Sorry. Unfortunately, my brother became a lawyer. I would rather have him become a doctor. But, um, uh, and then, therefore, the pressure was on me to even more become a, a doctor. And my mother, unfortunately, since neither of my parents went to even finished high school, actually, um, got me, I think, helped get me interested in science in the sense that she mistakenly told me that, you know, doctors were scientists. Well, medicine is some, somewhat related so, to science. Some of medicine is, certainly. Most doctors are, are not scientists in the sense that... Right, right. And, and, uh, I, and therefore, but I got interested in science, and I started reading about it a lot when I was a kid. And so reading about science, particularly about scientists and, and, and books by scientists in particular, uh, had a big impact on me, and it was only in, you know, I guess sometime in high school when I realized that doctors weren't scientists, and I was kind of hooked on science. Uh, and also, I, I had crummy biology teachers. Um, and, uh, and physics was always the, by far the sexiest of the, of the disciplines. And so, um, and still is, by the way. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, so, I think that that, and in fact, that's one of the reasons why I, I guess I write, is, is to return the favor, because I was turned on by books by Isaac Asimov and George Gamow and people like that. And it's nice for me, and it happens, that when, when, when people who were once young and now are not uh, have told, told me that one of my books turned them on to science in one way or another. Um, and so I actually wasn't convinced I was going to do physics. I didn't know what I was going to do. I did history for a while um, mm-hmm. because physics seemed detached from people, and I'm very political as well, as, as may, we may get to. Um, because, in fact, to, to amplify what you said, science is not just a part of everyday lives. It's a part of every important political decision mm-hmm. that has to be made, yet it's never discussed by politicians. One of the things I've been working hard to change. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so uh, eventually I, um, I, I just uh, I ended up doing a PhD in physics. I was, I was thinking about doing philosophy when I was... Uh, I, I, won't, I sort of had an opportunity to go, go to Oxford when I was younger and take some scholarship, and um, I didn't. I was very happy. I came to the United States instead and, and did physics because philosophy is such a waste of time. That uh, uh, oh, I forgot. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, so so and but I didn't know if I'd get a job, but it was just fun. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the reason that to do science. To, I mean, I mean, you have a very long answer to a short question, but no, no, that's okay. But the reason people do science is not to save the world. It's not uh, to. It's because it's fun. That's the only reason that oh, people do oh. science. And generally, you're not going to work for 20 years on a, on a given subject unless you enjoy it. And uh, and I think that we don't. We don't explain that enough. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, was there any kind of religious or spiritual background in your childhood? Uh, that was a religious background. I, I, I was brought up in a Jewish family, and I was bar mitzvahed and briefly became anti-Semitic for a while after that. Uh, um, and, uh, um, but it wasn't, there was not any much spiritual. There was never, uh, yeah, there was, it was never... Religion was never discussed in terms of ideas. It was more sort of tradition and, and social obligation. Um, there was never... I, 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 because I read a tremendous amount when I was a kid, and I, I still like to. I mean, reading's important to me. And so I read, I, I read the Bible, I read the Koran, I read a bunch of things when I was a kid, and went through phases where um, those, those myths uh, uh, appealed to me. 
Um, and then I grew out of it, just like Santa Claus. Um, you have said that physics is a human, creative, intellectual activity like art and music. I mean, you talked a minute ago about the fun. I mean, you use the word pleasure. Um, talk some more about that. Well, yeah, no, I think it's very important. I, 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 um, I just wrote about this in the New York Times this week. Um, I think people somehow view science in terms in a utilitarian way. As if the value of science is the technology it produces, but but I think that's completely mistaken. I think obviously science is responsible for the technology that's allowing us to have this discussion, and pretty well everything that allows most of you to still be alive which is vitally important, and therefore it's changed our lives more than anything else. But to me, one of the most exciting thing about science is the ideas. Science has produced the most interesting ideas that humans have ever come up with, certainly among the most interesting. And somehow, although it wasn't always this way, I was just having a discussion in Aspen last week on this very subject, it wasn't always this way, but now it's somehow the ideas of science are not, you, are not a part of our culture. It's perfectly acceptable to consider yourself literate if you understand, if you know something about Shakespeare, but not if you know anything about the Higgs boson. And uh, I think that's a, that's a mistake. I think to be, and it, as I say, it's relatively recent. You, you, you used to be considered illiterate if you didn't have some ability to discuss at some level natural philosophy 200 years ago, or even at the turn of the last century. And now it's perfectly acceptable to say, oh, I just, you know, I don't get science. And scientists are responsible for a lot of that, I, I, I have to say. But it's the ideas of science that make it so much, so important for humans, because it's part of what makes being human worth being human. The ideas of science. As I often say, we, we don't remember the Greek plumbing so much. <laughs> uh, we, we remember their architecture and their ideas. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think... Um, and I think for me that's what makes science worth, worth, worth exploring for people. Uh, mo most people don't have to know how to build the detailed things of science, but, to, but the ideas change our perspective of our place in the cosmos. And to me that's what great art, music, and literature is all about, is when you see a play or, or see a painting or hear a wonderful piece of music, in some sense it changes your perspective of yourself. And that's what science does in a profoundly important way, and a way with content uh, that that matters. And okay. you're, you're a musical person, or you, you love music, you're passionate about music, aren't you? <laughs> On paper, I look like a musical person. Okay, uh, isn't uh, that true? <laughs> I, love, I do like music. I like mm -hmm. art, but I love, yeah, I like mm -hmm. music a lot. Yeah. I mean, I have, if you've read my biography, you know I have some, some apparent credentials, but they're all fake. Okay. <laughs> Glad <laughs> I, we clarified that. I was nominated that. for a Grammy, I will admit that. Um, I just can't, I just have no musical ability. But music, my daughter was very musical. I played the violin in Cleveland, in fact. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I've, uh, I've learned a lot through her. Um, so I think I probably first became aware of you with uh, the physics of Star Trek. Good. Because I was a huge, well, still am a huge Star Trek fan. And can I just say, I'm so pleased that you're talking about all the generations, you know, Commander Data... I Absolutely, it's important. The voyagers as well as next generation. That dates both of us, by the way, but in any case. Okay. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think as I've spoken to lots of scientists over the years, and um, I don't know, 
I think sometimes it's surprising to non-scientists that scientists love science fiction. I mean, you, you wrote somewhere that um, all scientists, uh, all physicists you know, watch Star Trek growing up. But, but, but then as I was thinking about this and thinking about the way you, you um, put science like in the realm of being cultured and arts, and I mean, science fiction is a narrative, imaginative uh, rendering of, sci- of what scientists do it's and discover. It's interesting you should put it that way, in fact, because it, it, it's really interesting that you put it that way because people imagine science fiction is an imaginative rendering of science, when in fact science is a far more imaginative rendering of science fiction. Uh, um, and, and no, it's somehow, that's the point. Creativity is not something, and imagination are not things that are only associated with science, except, except the, you know, phys- Richard Feynman, who I did write a book about, yes. uh, said, you know, science is, is imagination in a straitjacket. And, and it's really, it's far more difficult to conform your imagination to the evidence of reality than to invent your own realities. In fact, that's religion as an example. And um, uh, I'll wait for the Yeah, for we'll the get to it, but I'm but, just um, not going to go there yet. Okay? But anyway, no, so, so I loved, I did like science fiction until I discovered that science is much more interesting than science fiction. The universe continues to surprise us in ways that we would never imagine, which is why the way, by the way, why I'm a theoretical physicist, but, but science and physics are empirical disciplines. And if we just thought about the universe... And, and again, to not be completely facetious, philosophy was an example of that. If we just thought about the universe, we'd come up with the wrong answers. Because the universe is, is far more imaginative. And, and so we have to keep probing the universe and asking questions. And that means doing experiments and observations. Because it constantly surprises us. And in ways that no one would have imagined. And all, one of the things that amuses me about science fiction is how it misses all the really big things. <laughs> so, so do others physicists watch Star Trek growing up and then they realize that science is more interesting? Is that, it's hard to know. The, I mean, I mean I've because, thought about that a lot. People ask me. It's hard to know if, this, if, the, if the watching Star Trek influenced them to become scientists or the other way around, or whether their interest in science was promoted. I think there's no doubt, and Stephen Hawking wrote the foreword for, for that particular book, and he said, it, you know, it, it helps spur the imagination, and it does. So to the yeah. extent that I think it was one of the... I used to think it was a geeky thing to watch Star Trek. It isn't. One of the things that amazed me when I wrote that particular book that shocked me was how broadly and deeply Star Trek had permeated not just the culture in the United States but around the world. Um, and it wasn't just 16-year-old boys watching it. No. And it was, you know, and, and people who became scientists, lawyers and, and women. And it was, it's kind of interesting. It's not a, a gender thing either. Uh, and so, and what, the reason that I think that's the case is that it was... It presented two things, a hopeful view of the future, which science fiction doesn't often do, and a view of the future where science actually made the world a better place. Yes. The Star Trek future is a better place because of science. And um, <laughs> I can't resist saying it here now that I think about it, but it was one of the reasons, if you, if you know in Star Trek, that, then, that basically um, um, they dispensed with the quaint notions that we, of myopic views of the 20th century, including most of the world's religions. Yeah, well, yeah, okay. We're not going to go there still. Um, okay. I keep trying to get you there, but it's not going to go work. Yeah, they did, but then you had in The Next Generation, you had this kind of semi, this immortal, semi-divine cue. Uh, we probably shouldn't do this. It's too inside like... baseball. I mean, but, you know, just to this point that, that uh, Stephen Hawking did write the forward to your physics of Star Trek, I mean, there was, there's an episode of, of Star Trek The Next Generation where he 
he was in the show, and sure. he was together with Einstein, who obviously was not there in person, although maybe yeah. he can bend space-time that much. I don't know. Uh-huh. A couple of others. And, uh, and Stephen Hawking wrote in the forward to your book, I was very pleased that Data decided to call Newton, Einstein, and me for a game of poker aboard the Enterprise. So we and have I, to go on, Stephen but I, I wish we could talk about this for an hour. Um, <laughs> That's the reason he appeared in the show. I'm sure it was one of the <laughs> um, And as you've pointed out... Um, Often, you know, like literature and the arts, um, science is getting at origins. Uh, who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? So, but in a very different way than religion approaches these things, or philosophy, or the arts. So, as a f- cosmologist, I'm my time yeah, I know, no, but I just want to hear from you. Like, as a physicist, how do you approach the question of origins? What are you looking at? What are you exploring? Well, I, I think I'm exploring the same questions that people have had since they've, you know, since people have been people. Uh, we all want to know where we come from, uh, uh, how the universe originated, how it'll end, what we're made of, uh, um, and 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 that naturally does lead to questions of is there purpose and 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 are we here for a reason? I think. But those uh, aren't science. Well, those questions. aren't scientific questions. Yeah. And yeah. in fact, as, it, it, that's what I was just going to get at. They're not yeah. scientific questions. Uh, um, uh, they presume. In fact, most people. In fact, the, uh, I've gotten in a lot of trouble from some philosophers recently, because I use the word why. Why is there something rather than nothing? And in fact, my, as I say very clearly in the book, why, why questions don't mean anything. They're, they're content-free. Any of you who have children who've been asked why, 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 when the end, ultimately the answer, only answer to that is because, uh, and that is also content-free, because why presumes purpose. Whenever we say why, we really mean how, at least in science. In science, yeah. And, and it's true, and... and, and that has content, and, and we say, when we mean why in religion, we're presuming the answer before we ask the question. We're presuming there's purpose. There must be a reason for our existence, otherwise why? And, and it, science doesn't make that presumption, and the remarkable thing is science finds the universe works pretty well without that presumption. Um, and, and so when we ask, when we ask the, the, the why, as we used to ask, you know, we can ask the question, why are there nine planets? And there are nine planets, by the way. Pluto is a planet. I don't care what my friend Neil Tyson says. Um, uh, my daughter studied Pluto in grade four and did a project on Pluto, and I don't plan for her to go back. And, uh, uh, but when we ask that question, we don't... Even when, when Kepler asked the question, say, why are there five planets, he might have meant there was some divine purpose. He would talk about the platonic solids and all that. But now we've changed the meaning of that because we realize that there aren't five... Not only are there not five planets, that there's nothing special about nine planets. There are solar systems around most stars we see. We've discovered 2,000 planets already. And, and so the question we really means how are there nine planets? How did our solar system arise? Is it different than other solar systems? Is it natural to have an Earth-like planet? Could there be life elsewhere? Those are productive questions. And so science changes the kind of questions we ask by changing the meaning of words because we learn things. We change the meaning because we understand the universe and we make progress. And I would argue that's why science... It's nothing wrong about changing the meaning. It's because there's progress in science, unlike, uh, you know, theology. <laughs> I'm sorry. I keep trying to hope I'll provoke some people here. But, but, but what I mean by that is we're forced... Science, one of the values of science is to make us uncomfortable. Somehow, that's supposed, that's, that's supposed to be a bad thing for many people, being uncomfortable. Being uncomfortable is a good thing because it forces you to reassess your, 
your place in the cosmos. And being too comfortable means you become complacent and you stop thinking. And, and, and so being uncomfortable should be a spiritually uplifting experience. So I don't mean that science isn't spiritually uplifting. I do think it is. But for the very reasons that, that the very antithetical reasons to religion, I guess, is the fact that it causes us to feel less, less comfortable should provoke us to un- try and understand what, our, what we can do and what meaning we can make in the universe. And so um, learning that we're more insignificant or learning that the universe isn't made for us and, or there's no evidence that it is, uh, is, is profoundly inspiring or should be. But I really want you to tell me, as a cosmologist, when Why? you think of origins... What, stars, what, right? Stars that or, died. The reason I created the Origins Project or helped create the Origins Project at Arizona State and the reason I moved there to lead it is, is all of the interesting questions that, that I can see in science and to most part in scholarship beyond science have to do with origins. The questions at the forefront of every field are origins questions. They're really the heart that you're trying to get at. In the case of the universe, you know, how did the universe begin? What was bef- you know, are we the only universe? What happened before the Big Bang? All those origins questions. But, but we study everything from the origins of the universe to the origins of life. Origins of life questions are profoundly interesting from a philosophical, but more importantly from a scientific perspective right now. The origins of consciousness. If you think of the frontiers of human investigation, they inevitably conf- uh, involve origins. And so, and we've been pushing those origins questions back. Um, uh, and that's the great thing about science. The, the que- origins questions 200 years ago, when Darwin asked them, would have been very different. I mean, I remember or- Darwin in, in, in Origins of Species said, I think it was in Origins of Species, it might have been the Descent of Man, said, you know, he's talked, he never talked about the origin of life, by the way, right? He talked about the origin of the diversity of species. He never talked about the origin of life itself. And even once he just poo-pooed it, he said, oh, origins of life, you might as well talk about the origins of matter. Uh, because okay. you're not so that's understand. what you're talking about now. Exactly, and yeah. that's what's great. We get we're pushing back those frontiers, so the kind of questions we can ask, and, the, and for me, it's just the most exciting questions. I I find it synonymous with the most exciting questions. What's f- the reason I became a particle physicist is because the it, it's the fundamental structure of of the universe that ultimately sheds light on all the complexity that we see. The universe seems to be incredibly complex, and one of the beauties of science is that is at some level we, the diversity of life, the complexity of the phenomena we see, we can understand in terms of a few very basic principles and how remarkable that is. I mean, how amazing that is and how we should celebrate that. Mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of feel like you have an assumption that people in this room wouldn't celebrate that. But no, I, no, no. I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I think in this room there's more likely that they would celebrate it than, than, than in many other places, I, I would suspect. Uh, yeah, no. It's true to all of you. <laughs> um, Okay, so, you know, one thing you're really great at is explaining, you know, taking concepts of physics. And um, I, I, I thought we might do a little bit of that, but mm-hmm. maybe we save that for, the, you know, we, you know, ask If there's you, anything, any burning question you have, I'm happy to answer it. Well, I have lots of burning questions. But I think maybe what would be fun to talk about now specifically is the, is the Higgs boson which is something that's out there that we're talking about that's not new, but newly, newly more likely, right? I mean, not you can't say 150% proven, but there's it, new it, evidence, right? It's certainly captured, yeah, it's cap- yeah. not only captured the imagination. It's and and that is one of these fundamental ways of talking about what it's all made of and how it comes together. Yeah, and, 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 and again, to promote my piece in The Times on Tuesday, I... I tried to explain, 
uh, you know, I don't make money from it, so it's okay for me to promote it. Um, I tried there to explain why it's why I think it's important for well, people who don't care about science to yeah. But to, I mean, to, so how how do you explain the the very basic que- question? How do you answer what okay. what is the Higgs on? Why should I why should I care? Yeah, well, to, it, it, the answer is a little is is not so pat as you often hear. People often say, well, it's responsible for mass, but it's not that question. I, I was just doing an, an interview yesterday where someone said, well, I never asked the why there was mass, so why should I care? And and <laughs> and, and it's true. It's not as if you wake up and say, gee, why do particles have mass? It, it's, it, it could be just a given. Uh, but it's much more, there's a much more interesting intellectual reason why we were led there. And it's, an, it's a reason that we should celebrate. But I bet most of the people here don't know why we should celebrate. So, it, so I'll explain it. Okay. Um, we should celebrate revolution in our understanding that took place uh, about 45 years ago, or within, the, within the last 50 years. A totally complete revolution in our understanding of the universe that's been unheralded. You don't read about it much. In the 19, early 1960s, there are four forces in nature. Electromagnetism, which you know of, and gravity, the two you're most familiar with. There are two more called the strong force and the weak force. In 1962 or three, we understood one. One force in nature, electromagnetism, is the only force we understood as a quantum theory. Quantum mechanics is the theory that go- governs matter on very small scales and forces. Only one of them was understood. What is remarkable is within a decade... We understood three of those four forces of nature. I mean, it was one of the most amazing period of scientific expansion and understanding the universe, and and it's not really understood. And one of the most beautiful aspects of that is we understood that all of the forces in nature could be understood in terms of a single mathematical formalism. They had exactly the same structure mathematically, which is profoundly interesting. But even more interesting, perhaps... You know you've made a breakthrough in science when two things that seem very, very different suddenly are recognized as being different aspects of the same thing. And what was discovered in the 60s, or proposed, was that two of those forces, electromagnetism, which is a long-range force, and, and of course we all experience it, and the weak force, which most people don't experience, but it's responsible for the nuclear reactions that power the sun, two forces that seem incredibly different the weak forces, the, strong, the electromagnetic force is long range. I can experience it across the room. The weak force operates only on the scale of nuclei, and it's 20 orders of magnitude weaker than the electric force on most of our, our, our human realm. Those two very different forces could be understood as different aspects of the same thing. Now, how can that be? I'm going to take a little bit longer. I hope you don't mind. That's fine. Okay. Well, it turns out in quantum physics, in quantum mechanics, we understand forces by the exchange of particles. We experience the electric force, static electricity, by the exchange of particles called photons, particles of light. And it's because they're massless that the electric force is long range. It was proposed that the the weak force is weak and short range because of the exchange of very massive particles. And that was proposed in the 1960s, and those particles were discovered at CERN, the same place it just discovered the Higgs boson, 25 years ago. But how could, therefore, something, a force that has massive particles, be the same as a force that has massive particles? Well, they could be the same if at a fundamental scale, all the particles are massless. They can be described by exactly the same mathematics. And then what happens is the mass of the particles that convey the weak force is an accident, it's an accident of our existence. If, and this was what seemed too good to be true, if this invisible field 
permeates all of space. You can't see it. But if the particles that convey the weak force interact with that field and get slowed down like swimming through molasses, get retarded because of that interaction, they act like they're massive. Whereas the photon doesn't it, and, and it remains massless, then everything would work. And it just seemed too good to be true. It seemed too good to be so, true for so, me. Okay, so it's, so it's like this... It, it, things appear to have mass the way they do because of the relationship they have to this field, as yeah, opposed well, to something the, that's intrinsically given. But we were driven to it not because the ma- particles that make you and I have that mass, but because, he's, because of this beautiful unification. Right. That was what drove us to it. And then people said, hey... Maybe if it's true for the, these particles called the W and Z photons, maybe it's true for all the particles. Maybe all the particles can be massless. And the Higgs field... Including and, the atoms that make us. Well, including many of the particles that make us up. Not all of them, it turns mm-hmm. out. Okay. But, but uh, the ones that are heavier act heavier because they interact more strongly with that field. And the ones that are lighter are lighter because they interact less strongly. And the ones that are massless don't interact at all. And light travels at the speed of light, so it... It doesn't slow down and doesn't it get It doesn't all, slow down doesn't because it, it doesn't interact at all. Photons don't interact. That was a proposed property. Now, what's amazing, as I say, it seems kind of slimy, doesn't it, to invent... It's, well, it's... <laughs> I won't make kind a comment about religion. No, good. Um, but it, 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 it's... Inventing invisible forces is not, the, is not what science is all about. It's what other things are all about. And, uh, and science should be... If it's there, we should be able to detect it. And the, but the great thing is, so, so if it turns out it's a consequence that if there is this invisible field that's doing all this marvelous stuff, then physics says if you hit it hard enough, if you smack that field hard enough with enough energy in a small enough region, you'll produce real particles. That's a prediction. And those real particles, the field is called a Higgs field, those real particles will be called Higgs particles. So if that field exists, you should be able to produce particles and see them. And that's what we've been trying to do for the last 50 years. And that's what's happened in 2012 That's, that's what just happened, right. we think. We built a machine. We were building a machine in this country 25 years ago, 20, well, 20 years ago, that would, have detect, that would have been sure to detect these particles, we think. But Congress, in its wisdom, and, even, and then when it was much wiser, it was still pretty stupid, uh, um, decided that it was, even after building the biggest tunnel that had ever been built, 60 miles around in Texas underground, decided they couldn't afford the $5 billion to, to, to finish the project, which is now, the, what, the cost of air conditioning for a day during the Iraq war or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, you know, which was a bigger, much bigger waste of money. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, but we decided we couldn't build it, so it's been built in Geneva. Fine, that's so life. So I, 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 I want to understand this so badly, and I, you know, I, eh. I struggle to understand it. So when we talk about the Higgs boson, we're not. That is an expression of the field, right? What well, in, in quantum physics, fields and particles are the same thing. All fields exist. Uh-huh. The, the electric fields. When you feel static electricity, classically, that's an electric field. Maxwell and Faraday described it beautifully. In fact, the first unification, major unification, was the unification of electricity and magnetism. Two very different seeming forces were understood by Maxwell and Faraday and others to be different manifestations of the same thing. Beautiful, just beautiful. But that field that they call the field, we now understand is due to the exchange of particles, okay. photons. And, and the weak force due to the exchange of W and Z bosons. And we understand that the Higgs field, the, the reason p- particles feel mass, is by exchanging particles with that Higgs field, Higgs particles. Mm-hmm. And if they exist, 
as I say, we have to be able to detect them. And we even predict many of their properties. That's why it's not just a crapshoot. We didn't know their mass, but we predict many of their properties. And the particle that's been observed, the bump that's been observed in Geneva, is Higgs-like. It, it seems to have all the properties of the Higgs, and, and it's where we kind of would have expected it maybe to be, which is what surprised me, because I was betting against it. I was sure like this beautiful... Stephen Hawking house, betted against it, too. Right? Yeah, he well, lost $100. Yeah, it's one of the few times that Stephen and I agree, in fact. But, <laughs> but it just yeah. seemed too good to be true, and, it, and it's so rare that nature obeys what we imagine to be true, that I thought nature would come up with a much more interesting way around it. And, hmm. and, um, and, and I would never have guessed it was true. And it's still not certain that it's true. In fact, what's really beautiful is every time we make a discovery in, in science, we, we end up having more questions than answers. And having discovered the Higgs, if that's what we've done, is, does not close the book. Because we still don't understand why this Higgs field exists in the universe, which is really, and why, by why I mean how, um, <laughs> Why, why that Higgs field exists because that's really what's responsible for our existence. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for it. And we think that, there, that besides just discovering this particle, there are other tantalizing hints. In fact, in the nature of what's been discovered, plus what we expect, it'll say the Large Hadron Collider at Geneva will, will point us in the right direction to answering those questions. We've been, as I often say, like people locked in a room with sensory deprivation for 40 years. What happens? You hallucinate. And that's what most of the business of what I've been in is hallucinating for the last 40 years. Most of the hallucinations we've had, namely theoretical physics, will be wrong. Most ideas are wrong. We don't celebrate that enough, but it's true. Most ideas are wrong. And so all of the ideas may be wrong, but we won't know until nature points us in the right direction. And I think, and many other people think, that if what we've really discovered is the Higgs, there's bound to be new things at the Large Hadron Collider that will point us in the much more interesting direction. And you don't, and you don't even know what that direction is right no, now. No, no. Yeah. I mean, I, I have speculations. I have ideas, as so do other theorists. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and I, as I always hope I'm wrong. I have often say the two greatest states to be in if you're a scientist is either wrong or confused. And I'm often <laughs> both. And, uh, but, but, yes. And, um, and in a positive way, you, you talk about that as, you know, beautiful. And, and mystery is a word that's absolutely part of your vocabulary. Mysteries are, the, are what it's all about. In fact, not knowing is much more exciting than knowing, right? Because mm-hmm. it means there's much more to learn. The, the search is often much more exciting than, than the finding. And um, mysteries are what drive us as human beings, I think. They're certainly what drive scientists. And, uh, and, the, and the beautiful mysteries of the universe are what, what should keep propelling us because we are fortunate enough, for whatever reason to have an intellect and, and have evolved, and I can still say that in the United States, to have evolved uh, a consciousness that allows us to ask those questions. And to stop asking them is just a tragedy. Yeah. Okay, so here's where I want to talk about religion. Oh, good. <laughs> good, because when we talk about stop asking those questions, it's a natural segue uh, to religion. Well, yeah. but actually, uh, actually, what I was going to say is I think... A reverence for mystery is something that great scientists and mystics and, in fact, our traditions at their orthodox cores have in common. Absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I know that's not what religion is most famous for right now. But, I, 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 it, it, you know, it's, it, it, to me, that is the shared language. Um, the, the, there's the shared language of mystery. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you that. No, and, and I mean, the origin... <laughs> Thank you. The shared, well, yeah, except that science has changed the language yeah. because science has meaning. And, and I don't mean that in a facetious way. I, I really don't. Mm-hmm. I, I think that 
science and religion and mysticism and all have their origins in the same in being human. They all have common origins. The difference is that science is, science has moved beyond has taken us beyond our childhood. So so one thing that um, happens to me because I spend my life in conversations and yeah. so I, I start to have this cumulative conversation in my head. Mm-hmm. And so a couple of people I was thinking of as I was reading you and kind of getting inside your head. By the way, I think I, I talk about my, uh, my interview methodology as um, the Vulcan mind meld oh, method. Excellent. Okay, so that okay. I try to... Uh, you know, your thoughts to my thoughts. I try to just know everything I can, so I kind of have an idea of how someone thinks, not just what they know. I want you to know the earth moved for me as well. That I'm what? Okay. No, it doesn't matter. I'm just, anyway. I didn't hear that, and I'm not going to ask you I won't you get to... into the radio program, okay. I'm sure. I didn't anyway. hear it. And, okay, so two people I thought of. Um, I mean, one is, I think, a lot of what you're arguing with in religion, a lot of religious people would argue with, too. And... Um, but I kept thinking of a geneticist, Lyndon Eves. Do you know him? He's done a lot of the biggest long-term studies of twins. Mm-hmm. And he's also an Anglican priest. Um, and he uh, s- said to me um, that when he was in his laboratory, you know, religion most of the time had no place there. He said, I keep it, at, I hold it at bay. And at the same time, when he's sitting at the bedside of somebody who's dying of cancer, science has nothing to say in that moment. There's meaning... Oh, I disagree about that. I, I think, I, you know, I know always people say, in fact, a very famous biologist said, when I'm, the minute I go in the lab, I'm What does I'm science have to say to death, to dying? Not, not to the biological breakdown of a body, but to the existential moment of dying. I, 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 I think it has a tremendous amount to say. I mean, it has to say to us that, you know, first of all, it has to say what dying is. What is dying? No, What's yeah, the okay, there's that. There's that. No, no, because, with, you know, I mean, we're all going to experience it. And I think a realistic assessment of what the process is helps us understand what we're going to experience and try and make sense of it. But what if, I mean, With, it seems to me you can't make sense, enough to make a, even an ethical or moral decision without understanding the basis in reality. You can, of course, but when you do, but, when you make your ethical and moral decisions based, without a basis in reality, then you end up with the Republican Party. And 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 uh, and uh, no, I'm serious. It was a joke, but I'm serious. I think so. I think so, and science can say, look, what, what seems to me what science could say is what I w- I've sort of said in the book is that look, um, there's no, you know, so people are going to say if what I'm about to say is going to sound awful, and I, and I'm not going to go to someone's bedside and offer this. Okay, it's up to them to decide if they want to, to look at these things. But we should at least offer the possibility of that knowledge. That there's no, ev- that there's no evidence, in fact, every bit of evidence that there's, there's no afterlife. That you're here, but in fact, the meaning of your life is the meaning that you make. And in your life, you've made incredible meaning. You've, you've created love for other people. You've, you've brought up children. You've, you've created new knowledge. You've, hi- you've allowed people to have livelihoods. And that meaning made your life worthwhile and enjoy every second of being alive. And, if you, and, and, and death is, 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 a, is a sad but necessary part of being alive. And, those, and, and I, that may not sound like the same comfort of saying that, you know, you're, you're going to have eternal life and you're going to be with your, your uh, I family. Don't think, or, uh, you I don't know, think Lyndon is talking to people about eternal life. No, but, I mean, but, yeah. so, but, but I don't see why science 
why that's any less comforting than... But what you just said isn't science. Yes, it is. It's, it's saying there's no evidence. I mean, here's what we're saying is that... But is, you, don't, you don't, can't put meaning under a microscope. You can't, you can't, you can't shoot particles at it in the large head. No, but water. I don't understand what meaning is. Till I know, till I ask the questions of, of, of how the universe behaves. And, I, and, I, and look, there could be, we can never disprove purpose. But, but we, you know, so I can never say there's no purpose to the universe. I could just say the universe behaves as if there's no purpose, but that may just mean I'm missing the point, as, as a lot of people may think. But, but there could have been, but you can answer it in the positive. But there's no evidence. I could, the, the stars tonight, if the stars tonight realigned themselves and said, I am here, in, in Greek, presumably, um, uh, ancient Greek, uh, then, then, hey, I'd say, you know, maybe there's something to all this. Yeah. Uh, but, the, but in the absence of that, I can't, I can't, if Bertrand Russell said, you know, I can't disprove that there's a teapot orbiting Jupiter. I can't, and I can't. There's no evidence of it, and it's highly unlikely. And, and I think, and I think, Providing that reality check is useful to people, not just when they're dying, but when they're alive. It seems to me, you know, some people say that religion gives meaning to their lives, but to me, the knowledge that the meaning we have is the meaning we make should inspire us to do better. And so I think that, I personally think that every single thing that religion provides, rationality, empiricism, and science can provide, and not only that, it can provide it better. Anyway. <laughs> um, well, what do you know? So the, the, other, the other voice that was in my head was somebody who's, I did not interview in person, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Uh-huh. He died. I, yeah, I know of him. I knew his daughter. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah, Susanna. But, you know, he talked a lot, he talked a lot like you do about radical amazement, that the whole point of life is to be surprised and to be surprised over and over again, and that spiritual life is about learning to be surprised. And here's something he wrote. Um, It is customary to blame secular science and anti-religious philosophy for the eclipse of religion in modern society. It would be more honest to blame religion for its own defeats. Religion declined not because it was refuted, but because it became irrelevant, dull, oppressive, insipid. This is a rabbi from a long line of rabbis. When faith is completely replaced by creed, worship, by discipline, love, by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religion speaks only in in the name of authority rather than with the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. And I just read that because when I read you talking about religion, and I really don't want to debate it because no, well, there's no debate. I think I, we're having a discussion. Yeah, so. yeah, okay. I do too. Um, I feel like I'm not sure if you've been exposed to that kind of religious voice, which I, which I think I have, would, I, would well, enjoy. I, think, a I mean, it's a brilliant statement, and and you know, the wisdom wisdom is not the province of just of scientists or or of or, or of anyone. I mean, you know, there and, and that's a wise statement. Wisdom comes from experience and knowledge. And understanding history and understanding the universe, the, the reason to know things is, is, in some sense, to reflect on them and become wiser. And, and it's not the province of anyone. And, and people seem to think, I suggest, it's the province of science. Science is the raw material that provides the basis of wisdom, and, and, um, for some people. And, uh, and so you're, I don't want to um, stereotype religion, per se, uh, and I often quote, they're brilliant statements. I've often quoted them. I, I've gone into many places and fundamentalist colleges and, and Fox News and, and, uh, and uh, 
the same thing. Um, you know, and I quote Moses Maimonides and, 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 yeah. and St. Yeah. Augustine. I mean, they're brilliant statements, you know, and I, my favorite statement of Maimonides is more or less paraphrase that, you know, as he said, the scriptures are absolutely true, but if your interpretation of the scriptures disagrees with the evidence of science, you should re-examine your interpretation of the scriptures. And, and there's a lot of wisdom in all of that. And, 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 um, and I think that that's, but what I'm trying to, but what I'm amazed about is when someone as wise as, 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 that, as that rabbi mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, says those things, I don't, what I don't understand is why they need religion or the, or the, the doctrine. I mean, if you're a rabbi at some level, you buy into the importance of Judaism. And I have many, one of my, many of my friends, uh, one of their mothers-in-laws is here today. I was just talking to you. Who, 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 uh, one of your mothers-in-laws? No, one of their mother-in-laws, okay. not one of, one of mine. My, um, uh, I only have one. Um, uh, and um, they often say, well, you don't have to believe in God to be Jewish. And I say, That's, you know, it's absolutely true, but what's the point? Uh, well, you know, you know. Uh, I, I mean, because the, the wisdom, there's there's cultural wisdom. There's you know, there's beauty in 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 the in in, 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 in the masses that have been written for the church. There's beauty in the paintings that mm-hmm. Leonardo da Vinci and others and Michelangelo and others did in the context of religion. But that doesn't. That's just the the response to the culture of the time. And and I don't see why, given what you know now, you can't have that same wisdom without discarding the. The provincial basis of it, which was based, let's face it, on the, the imaginings of illiterate peasants, Bronze Age peasants, before we knew the Earth even orbited the sun. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I think Einstein actually analyzed it that way, too, and the, the mm-hmm. primitive origins of religion, although he, and he did not believe in a personal God, and his statement no about God, no, his yeah. statement about God playing dice had nothing to do with God, and Niels Bohr came back and said, yeah. who is Einstein to tell God what to do? And, yeah. But he did, at the end of his life, become very appreciative of Judaism. You know, he, he said, Judaism is about life as we live it and can know it. That, that aspect of, of religion. But, okay. Yeah, no, no. And, and, accept, and so if you accept it as a philosophy, it's, it's fine up to a point, although actually, you know, I have grave problems with, with it as a philosophy as well. But, you know, there's wisdom in all the writings that humans have come up with at some level, and we should appreciate that wisdom. And, and, and I don't mean to suggest we shouldn't open our minds to trying to see those reflections and mm-hmm. the potential wisdom. But we don't... But I guess, as Einstein would have said, I don't see... The underpinnings, and he would have, you know, and, and a, a, as a cultural thing, he would have said, well, it's important to preserve that culture. And, and I guess I believe strongly in preserving culture, but culture that's, um, that's based on, on productive uh, reality. So, so one of the things that uh, the other people we've, I've been talking to this week, um, the, the other people who've been here at Chautauqua, are all religious people who've been working in in serving others, right? In yeah. in compassion and, and, do, and doing much more useful stuff than I do. Well, I, you know, I, working I working with with people who need help. And um, yeah, no, I admire tremendously. What but I do. but I just you know in a you I think say something. So we've talked a lot that this this concept of the other comes up and the problem human beings have with the other. Um, and it's a it's a problem not just for religion but for our society. Um, and you have talked about uh, the other in these terms, that we are connected organically to everyone who's ever lived, even our enemies through the atoms and the oxygen we breathe. I mean, I think that is an example of science throwing this fabulous new light 
on something that vexes us. Absolutely, in a much more productive way than saying we're all <laughs> brothers under the skin or something. Um, because we really are, but it's really amazing. Every time you breathe in, you breathe in atoms from virtually everyone who's ever lived. Every time you take a drink of water, you, you, you're drinking the secretions of every slimy thing that's ever <laughs> been around. And, and, and you know, as I, I said in the beginning of, that, uh, of the book Adam, that my mother used to tell me when I picked up a glass of water, don't touch that, you don't know where it's been. She had no idea. But, uh, um, but, but uh, I think that, that, that's exactly, to me, what science can provide is a realistic basis of understanding how artificial and myopic the definitions of us versus our enemies are. We're made of, not only are we made of the same things, we're made of their atoms. And, and, we're made, and, and every atom that we, in our body, was once inside a star that exploded. One of the most poetic things I know about the universe, that we're all stardust. These are, these are amazing things, and they have content, and they're true. And that, I mean, that's, it's a, those three things are great. You can be amazed without either the latter, the last, latter two. But I think when you get all three, it's, a, it's really something. Yeah. I, we have to open this up for questions because this is so interesting and we're running out of time. So we have two microphones as usual. And I, I'm going to have to stop the questions at some point. So let's get going. Thank you, Chris. I've enjoyed this. So yeah, far. yeah. Uh, down through the ages. Yeah, thank you. Down through the ages, religion has always offered hope, redemption, removal of guilt. You offer uncomfort, uncertainty. Is there any, doesn't that explain why most people are religious? Yeah, um, to some extent, but I don't think I just offer that. I think I offer hope. And, um, uh, you know, I, 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 and... Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure redemption is something that we, that we need. Um, I think science offers hope. It hope, offers hope for making the world a better place in a much more real way. Religion has been very successful for thousands of years at not making the world a better place. And uh, in, many, in many cases, and I, and I don't, you know, look, I understand... Uh, uh, the, the utility that religion has provided and the hope and the good service that's provided by many of the people who've been here, they're inspired by those things. Uh, but I guess the two things I say is that, first of all, that's not just the province of religion. People are inspired to make the world a better place for many other reasons. They can have hope in the future um, because, for many other reasons. And, and, and so... Um, uh, and, and I would say, on balance, that... Um, that religion has not achieved those goals in all the time it's been there. And, and you know, my friend Steven Pinker wrote a, uh, a wonderful book. It's a long book, a wrong, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature, um, which, which really discusses the reduction in violence over, over human history, which is amazing because we all have this presumption, you know, we're, we're talked about terrorism and all this nonsense, and, and we're taught to be afraid because it's very effective to control people who are afraid. And... and uh, uh, but in fact, you can show for, in very good ways, as he has, that violence has significantly reduced over time. And he argues, I think pretty effectively, that one of the reasons for that is the rise of rationality and the enlightenment. Not because people are more religious. In fact, happily, people are getting less religious all the time. And it's true. It's a statistic. People are getting, no matter what, in this country, is a very religious country, but the statistics are going down all the time. And there's a, there's a time when you imagine it might hit zero. And... and I personally think, at that time, 
if it ever happens, and I'm not convinced it'll ever happen, people may all, we're all hardwired to want religion in many ways from an evolutionary basis, but that the hope and the, and the lovingness and, and kindness will in fact increase instead of decrease when that happens. You know, I mean, at, I don't, at risk of, um, but I really don't want to, I just want to, I want to lodge this, that I, I don't um, equate um, drop in institutional affiliation with mm, a lack of religious or spiritual depth. And I mean, I think that's, that's the quibble I would have with that we, statistic. Well, I, I would yeah. argue, and, and you know, I'm not a big person. I, I didn't know if we'd get into spirituality. It's a term I never really understand. But, but, but I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think what I would like to see is that science and reality provide the spiritual fulfillment that, that we need as human beings. And I think it can. And people can disagree with me about that. Okay. Next question. Well, first of all, I'm not a, uh, an evolutionary psychologist or a neurologist or a neuroscientist, but um, I think it comes uh, from many of my understanding and my effort to understand um, that uh, suggests it comes from many different areas. It certainly comes from chemistry, um, um, hormones, and not just sexual hormones, but, 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 but many other aspects of, of of what drives our perceptions of ourselves and others. It comes from um, logic as well. It comes from understanding. It comes from the effort to understand someone and find that, there are, that they somehow mirror everything you, you love about, you like about nature, that everything you admire and respect. I'm deeply in love right now. And I think um, the, 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 the reasons for that is that, the, is that the person I'm deeply in love with reflects all of those aspects of the universe that I admire. But I also realize that there's many other aspects, physiological and chemical ones, that drive that. And, um, and I'd be a fool to, to think that I, was, that I wasn't also driven by those physical processes. Do we understand all of it? No. But that's the great thing. Not understanding it is wonderful because it means we'll, 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 there's so much more to learn about what drives us as human beings to understand ourselves. And maybe when we do, we'll be better, better at love. Yes. Thank you. Can you explain to us what dark energy and dark matter are and why, oh, excuse me, how it's important to us? And you, you have about two minutes for that. Well, um, they are almost everything in the universe. Let me make it quite clear that, that you are indeed far more insignificant than you ever imagined. <laughs> Not just you, um, <laughs> but you, not me, but all of you. Um, but uh, no, all of us. Uh, because <laughs> we have learned that if you look at everything we can see, the beauty of the night sky here, and it's nice and dark at night. I was looking last night at the stars. And um, the beauty of the night sky and everything we see is just a bit of cosmic pollution in a universe full of dark matter and dark energy. 99% of the universe... 30% of the universe, roughly, is this dark matter, which is made, we're reasonably convinced, of some new type of elementary particle that doesn't exist here on Earth. 70% is dark energy, which is the energy of nothing. One of the reasons I wrote this book that you're gonna, all going to buy. Um, <laughs> that, that, that empty space weighs something. It's amazing. Who would have thought that? Empty space weighs something, and most of the energy in the universe resides in empty space. Space isn't, wasn't really the right word, was it? 
space. What? Space. Space, space is, no space is still there. It's just and, but it's, and full, it's just right? and it's even empty. It's not. There's not <laughs> stuff in there. It's just. It's, there's nothing. You can look for it, and there's nothing there, but it weighs something. Okay. And well, that's, you say nothing is not nothing is something. Well, there's nothing there. You tell me what you think you should find there, and I don't and I don't find it. But um, but it weighs something, and that's meant. And what it really means, Chris, is that is that it changed what we mean by nothing. Right. But there's nothing wrong with that. Science changes what we mean by things all the time as, as, as we learn. That's what learning is all about. We change the meaning of things that we thought of before in a rough and un, in love. We may change what we mean by love when we understand it more, morality or lots of other ideas that, we, that are at the forefront of, of, of our understanding. But to get back to your, your question, so that's the dominant stuff in the universe, and everything we see is 1%. You get rid of everything we see, all the stars, planets, people, aliens, everything... And the universe would be essentially exactly the same. So, so much for a universe made for us. We're just a, we're just a relevant byproduct. And that's wonderful. That's wonderful. But the other reason you might care is that it's responsible for our existence. We now understand that without dark matter, for example, galaxies would never have formed. It was necessary for that dark matter to exist and be different than the normal matter in order for galaxies to form and therefore stars and therefore planets and therefore people and therefore theologians and, um, or whoever else. And therefore, we, it's responsible for our existence. Now, it will never produce a better toaster, I doubt. It won't, produce, it won't, it won't do anything useful. And therefore, you might say, why should we care about it? And what amazes me, to get back to the question you asked at the beginning, is why people ask that question. Because they never ask that question of why, what use is a Mozart concerto? Hmm. What use is a Picasso painting? What use is James Joyce Ulysses but or you whatever? Know, but that's why we have to have people like you, because we can't take that in. We, can't, we don't know how to enjoy that. Well, that we don't, you can't you're turn right, up, I agree. You There's can't a bigger turn up barrier. like you can for a But concert. you know what amazes? But at the same time, you can enjoy it, I would argue, and most people just give up, and scientists are a large part of it. Most people, when it says, come to science, well, I just don't understand it. They give up thinking, and, and that's a really sad part of our culture. And, you know, you don't, people don't say, you know what, I can't enjoy music unless I'm a musician. Can't enjoy art unless I'm an artist. But you know what? Unless I'm a scientist, I can't enjoy science. There is a great deal to enjoy. And of course, that's one of the reasons why I do what I do. But we have to get over this idea that you don't have to think at all. Well, you have to think a little bit. But, and people just close their minds. You know, I, I write books, and so sometimes I read reviews. I try never to, but I do. And, and, and a great... So you got someone... Let's take The New Yorker. You get a review of a John Kenneth Galbraith book on econ, economics that dates me but maybe Paul Krugman, if you want, in modern economics. And, and, people, and the reviewer will write a 10-page review analyzing in detail what he, he says, even if they don't understand it. But a review of a science book, a really good review of a book of mine is, it boggled my mind. I don't understand it, but it just boggled my mind. Now, can you imagine them writing that about Paul Krugman and, and still having their job at the New Yorker? You know, I just don't understand the economics, but it boggles my mind. And, but that's a great review of a science book. You just... Put your mind in neutral. Yeah. I've been told that many times. <laughs> any, any, anyway, go on.
not have to fear, but we may still choose to do it. Um, now, the other thing I would like to say is uh, we are typically a story people, and um, you would say we have followed perhaps a lot of myths far too long. But I think that some myths hold a truth that can't be said um, and can't be articulated and can't be proven. Um, that doesn't make it childlike to me. Well, they're both very, very interesting and important points that you've raised. Um, uh, I think we're, I think growing up is always a work in progress. I mean, we all, that's what we're doing our entire lives if we're doing it right. Um, and, it, and, and, the, and it comes from many different places for many different people. So, you know, I, I'm, not a, I'm, not a, I'm not Dr. Phil. I'm not prescribing... Uh, Nonsense that you know, pap for the public that everyone can you know make everyone alive better. I don't ever pretend to do that. At least I try not to. Um, you know, some things work for me and don't work for you, and 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 that's fine. So people get their inspiration from lots of different places, and there's there's no doubt that for many people, um, their religion helps them grow up. I, I, I'm not suggesting that's impossible. Uh, what what I guess I'm saying which is where we might disagree, ultimately, is that, is it necessary? Now, why should I ask that question? And the only reason I ask that question is it seems to me that it is absolutely true that religion can help you grow up, but when I look at human history, I would argue the net effect of religion, an organized religion, has been negative. And therefore, is it a necessary component, or are there alternatives to building a society where people don't need that, in order to grow up. And I would like to think of alternatives to creating such a society. Uh, I don't have any answers, but I'd like to ask the question. And, you know, that's what I guess amazes me because, you know, I spend a lot of time lately with Richard Dawkins. We're always called these strident atheists uh, because you're many, many, the minute you ask a question, you're suddenly strident. And so in the book, I ask the question, is it, you know, can, do, can we do without God? Just asking that question suddenly becomes a threat. Now, why is it a threat? As I was just talking to someone this morning, you're only threatened about things you feel defensive about, questions you don't want to answer. And so if it's threatening, if asking the question, is there a God, is threatening, it means you're pretty insecure about the whole thing. And so we need to ask questions, and, and I don't know the answer. As far as the myths, you know, you're right. There's, there's, there's Aesop's fables. There's, there's wisdom in those myths. But, but we recognize them for that. We recognize them as written by humans for humans to impart wisdom. We don't recognize them as, as, as representing literal truth, okay? And the danger, and I know you're not some, one of the people who does do that, but there's a great danger for people who take those things to be written by humans and ascribe them a certain sacredness that they don't deserve. But, but yeah. Okay. I mean, I just want to add to that that. Um, Thank you. I, I really appreciated the question. Yeah. Thank you. But the, the, it, it, there's a there's a potential danger. I mean, it's how you use those, right? And and science can also. I mean, there's a big destructive history of science, right? Science. The atomic oh, bomb, course. right? So it's how these things are applied, which of is of course that's what I said earlier. Science is the raw material, is the basis of wisdom, but science right. isn't wisdom. Yeah. And and science and the technology of science can be used for good or bad, and that's why, by the way. I don't think scientists should be running the world. I know many of my colleagues, and I'd hate the idea. Um, but more importantly, I'm interested in politics. I'm a very political animal, as you know. And, but
But what science should do is provide the empirical basis for, for people and all people to make decisions. And in a democracy, that means an informed populace and informed legislators. And we have neither. Okay. <laughs> So I feel like I have to confess first that I'm a rabbi. Um, okay. <laughs> but, you I know, forgive you, or whatever I'm supposed to. Okay. No, I, used, I was on stage with a Jesuit. That's never been a response I've gotten before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no. the, uh, I, I have uh, no interest, actually, in, in convincing you at all that religion is, is important. Because I, it I works for me, yeah. but it doesn't work for you. So. And I don't, I don't proselytize. I have no interest in convincing you that religion isn't important. I just want you to, people to understand how amazing the universe is. And what they take from that... They'll take from that. I, you know, my interest isn't in destroying religion, it's, it, it, although I do think that would be a good thing. But, but, but it's just to explain the world the way it is, and, and hope, you know, hopefully that will lead to a better world. Right, so, so that actually leads right to my question, which is you know, hearing you describe the incredible complexity and vastness of the universe and, the, and the, um, all, all the intricacies of it. And, and then I think, okay, so it sounds like you really believe that if we fail to appreciate that, that we have somehow not lived a meaningful life. Would you say that's accurate? I don't know whether meaningful. We've missed out. We've missed on what, out. What, what, on, on, the, on one of the wonderful things about being human. I, I don't know whether I describe meaning, but I think you're right. We've missed out. We've missed out. So then my question is, outside of religion, what mechanisms are in place for people to cultivate a regular appreciation of the universe? Well, look around this community. I mean, I think... I think the mechanisms are art, literature, music, and science, and I think, and, and all the other aspects of, 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 of human culture. I think um, they all contribute, and you know, and, and religion has contributed to the extent that it's literature or maybe history. Although there's some pretty good music too. What? And you know, I was going to say music and art, but they've been they've been sponsored by, but 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 you know, too many people tell me, well, Newton believed in God, and the, and and Michelangelo created what he did because of, of of the church, and therefore you wouldn't have any of that. Well, I don't buy that. It was the dominant culture of the time. It was a dominant patron of the time. There wasn't, you know, it was a dominant way to make money. If you were an artist or a musician, it was the only way. And so it's not too surprising that, that, the, that the beautiful music and beautiful art was created in, 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 in response to, the, to religion because it was the source of power and money and wealth. And so I think that's a cultural thing. So, but I think there's a plethora of ways of, the hum, of experiencing the human condition. And we should try and enjoy and experience all of them. And, and, um, uh, uh, and so, you know, people like you are rabbis. I know that you're, what you're trying to do is help people experience the world, the beauty of the Psalms as poetry and, and allegory for understanding or whatever, and that's fine with me. Um, but understanding it in those terms, in real terms, not somehow arguing, you know, to not take Judaism for the moment, but, uh, or not, well, in the case of taking Judaism, not arguing that stoning your children from disobeying you is a good thing, or, or, or giving your daughters out to be raped is a good thing, as happens in the Old Testament. Um, or that believing in the case of well, let me offend everybody uh, uh, that, that you know uh, that that this a, a wafer suddenly becomes in the hand of a priest a, a, the, the body literally of a first century Jew I mean that was, that's kind of crap you know okay give me a... um, we have can you have really quick question and answer and then we're going to come back up here to close the show so okay. I'll make this quick thanks for coming and thanks for asking great questions. Uh, uh, you're one of your colleagues, Stephen Jay Gould, I think, coined the term NOMA, non-overlapping magisteria. Mm-hmm. And in today's political culture, since you're a political junkie, 
Uh, how do you reconcile NOMA with today's political climate and the rise of the religious right? And, and well, I, I think, Steve, like many things Stephen Jay Gould said, that was wrong. And uh, uh, I don't believe there are non-overlapping magisteria. They are. There is a tension. If there wasn't a tension, then people wouldn't feel defensive and, 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 and there wouldn't be this kind of dialogue. There is a tension between science and religions, organized religion at least, and, um, and there, there, there are real threats. People in this country wouldn't feel threatened about teaching children about evolution if, there was, if, if, if they didn't feel a threat in their faith. It shouldn't. Well, maybe it might, the difference between me and, and, and my friend Richard Dawkins is he feels it should threaten your faith and it will threaten your faith. And my feeling is that it, that's irrelevant. It, if it threatens your faith, there's something wrong with your faith. And, 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 and so... Okay, you can applaud, fine. Okay, but... but uh, that's the important thing, that, that it, that there, there, don't yell at him. Okay. Um, so, uh, not on my time, anyway. Um, but uh, uh, I think that in that sense, there, 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 there really is a, a, a convergence. And more importantly, science presents knowledge that can, that can threaten faith. And, and we have to recognize that as a reality. And, uh, um, and, and, and we have to recognize that when it comes to political decisions, when it comes to decisions about the real world, what we're going to do in the 21st century, what the next president is going to do, science matters and faith doesn't. Okay. Um, I, mean, I mean that in not a pejorative way. I mean yeah. if you think about it, if you think about the questions that are facing us, it's what Krista said at the very beginning. The question, all the questions, you know, I run, I've created an organization that's called, was called Science Debate 2008. It's now Science Debate 2012. We tried to get a debate between the presidential candidates on the issues that matter, on energy, security, uh, uh, the environment, uh, health, all of the things that really are going to impact on our lives in the next 20 years, and all of which have science at their basis at least in, in order to create informed discussion. And last time around, the candidates decided to have a debate instead on faith. And what, is it, what did we learn? We learned they both had faith. Um, and, and, and so I think we, if we want to be informed about the issues that matter, that really the decisions that are going to come in Congress, we have to um, realize that science is the way to do it. Anyway, so, um, at least the way to inform ourselves. Yeah. I want to come at this... A slightly different angle, just our last couple minutes. Okay, um, sure. I think one of the most interesting things that's happening in science, in other parts of science, in yeah. neuroscience and mm-hmm. evolutionary biology, mm-hmm. is scientists putting, like, you know, taking into the laboratory uh, these virtues of, like, altruism, empathy, compassion, forgiveness, and, re- and realizing that these are essential to the survival of humanity, to living with this in this world of well, diversity. They're, they're to, essential to the evolutionary development of humanity. Right, yeah. right. And so one way I come to think of these practices, and you see our religious traditions are the places we've talked about virtue. Right. A lot of bad has been done. But... But a lot of good has been done too, and you know, in some but ways, I think the only places. What I no, no, it's not the it's not the only place. No, it's can't not the only. It's not the only place. I'm not yeah. saying that. But I sometimes think of some of these the way religious traditions have passed down virtues, theologies, practices. You know, meditation, um, practices of practical love as opposed to just the love you fall into as spiritual technologies. Well, to some extent, yes, but they've also practiced 
stoning women who adulter. Right, right, and, but, and, and, you know, to, so you got to weigh one versus the other. Yeah, but again, Einstein said science in his generation was like a razor blade in the hands of a three-year-old. And, and you know, he, he, thought, he thought scientists would transcend national boundaries and bring peace to all people, and they invented the atomic and, and bomb. And it hasn't yet. Abs- right, absolutely. Right. So, and, I'm just, and, you know, so again, that's the use. That's the application rather than well, necessarily you know, the intrinsic humans value. Humans are not just rational beings. If we are, the world would be a very different place. We have to recognize our inherent irrationality. Right. But yeah. that also is a scientific issue, I think. Well, yes. And... and, and and, but the, I guess, you know, the one thing I'm, I'm, I want to say that's probably the most unpopular, maybe, is I find it remarkable for people to say that religion passes on virtues. Okay. Well, so I we're not going gonna... to... I, I just think the history of religion is exactly the opposite. All right. Uh, we've sat with people this week who are embodying that. And, um, and, 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 and they uh, do. And there are examples of yeah. that. And, you know, throughout history, there are examples, as, as that woman said in her insight, for her... It passes on the virtues that makes her a good person, I'm right. sure. There's no doubt about that. But so, but but the, but on mass, I don't think it has. So so I want to ask you this. Just so some one scientist talked to me about the spirituality of a scientist, and here's how he described it. He said he thought the spirituality of a scientist is like the spirituality of a mystic, which is that in any given moment you are discerning truth as best you can and you're also completely aware that you have everything yet to discover. Um, an evolutionary biologist who's not religious recently said to me he thinks scientists need to recover the word spirituality. He said, we talk about it. We talk about the spirit of inquiry. So I just want to ask you, you know, very personally, like, you know, if you, if you did use that phrase, the spirituality of scientists, what would that mean for you? I think, I think you've captured some of it. If I had to use the term, I'd, I'd use awe in the wonder of nature and the realization that spirituality isn't having the answers before you ask the questions. And that's the main thing, that real spirituality comes from asking the questions and opening your mind to what the answers might be. Lawrence Krauss, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.